the societal cost of dealing with a chemical that was proven harmful down the road is enormous. I mean, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. It's just impossible. From the Coastal Institute at the University of Rhode Island, this is Silent Chemicals Loud Science, a show that takes the better living out of chemistry. I'm Brandon Fuller, and along with your host, Judith Swift, we'll talk to experts from around the globe about what's eating you, chemically speaking, even if you don't know it. Chances are, in the last five years or so, you've heard the term PFOS, or one of its counterparts like PFOS or PFOA. But like many people, you may still be wondering, what are they? PFOS. Inventions from hell. And, and heaven, I guess. Beautiful chemistry that were produced and initially helped with making the first atomic bomb in the US. And they were later further developed and used to produce things like Teflon. Dr. Reiner Lohmann is the director of the Steep Superfund Research Center, a team of scientists, doctors, and communicators working to address the human health threat of PFOS, the sort of chemicals Dr. Lohmann has been interested in for quite some time. Um, I think it goes back to actually to my late teen, teenage years when dioxins were a big scare, certainly across Europe. And I found them um, frightening and fascinating, and I thought I should study environmental chemistry and help by some means deal with them and the concerns and they raise for public health. Let's join a conversation with Judith and Dr. Lohman. Compounds made from polymers that have fluorine are used in a wide range of applications. Yeah, a smartphone will have some PFAS-linked chemicals in them. One key factor, is it not, is to see words like non-stick, weather-resistant or water-resistant, that sort of thing? Yes, they have beautiful surfactant properties, and that means that they have been heavily used in the Teflon-coated frying pans, baking pans, and so on, but also in all kinds of surface treatments, uh, be that carpets, anti-stain treatments, or the famous example of the micro- microwavable popcorn, which had a coating of PFAS. In the, bag, in the bag itself, the bag is coated. In the bag yes. itself, yes. Now, I believe that has been phased out since, but it's just an example of in what strange applications you can find a really harmful chemical. Chemically speaking, they are carbon chains that are, have a lot of fluorines attached to them that gives them these unique properties and gives them also an extreme stability. We talk about forever chemicals, basically meaning that they will be with us for a long, long, long time. So they don't degrade naturally? PFAS is a huge family of hundreds of thousands of chemicals, and you find a few that degrade, but typically what they degrade to is then another PFAS that is actually stable. So typically we say the only thing they all have in common is that they are persistent, as in they don't break down easily. And yes, there are a few microbes that might just about chew a fluorine here or there, but that's nothing that will save us from the contamination we see across the U.S., across the world. And that contamination is really widespread. It is global. It, it is global, or well, they're produced, used globally, but also they will transport, be transported globally. Um, the only reason why you don't necessarily see red flags all over the world is because in some countries, you, you just haven't looked yet. So if we were to look, we would most likely find it in some capacity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even in the U.S., if you look at the known sites across the U.S., you find some states that look like they have chickenpox and others look like they are 
completely healthy, but it's just a matter of do you want to invest the time and effort to look where you have contamination? The conservative estimate I have heard from many scientists who are working with PFAS is that 98% of Americans, as well as some people around the globe, have PFAS in their blood. 98%. Uh, yeah, you'll hardly ever get a scientist to say it's everybody. But realistically, I think we have to accept that it's everybody. Because if you go through the thought exercise, how somebody has to be raised to not have PFAS in them, it's almost impossible to do. So you because of the ubiquitous nature of PFAS in our in 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 our everyday life, is that the reason? Yes, I mean the fact that PFAS are in a lot of products where they probably shouldn't be, and the fact that you have basically everybody in the U.S have PFAS in them suggests it's not just the few the few horrible sites where groundwater is heavily contaminated, it's something else that is causing this widespread contamination. And then you have, of course, hotspots on top of the background. And so this background is basically ubiquitous. Um, and as I said, you can't basically grow up in most industrialized countries to avoid PFAS, but you can't also live in remote Arctic communities because they get a heck of a lot of PFAS through their diet. So that is not an option either. So. I think 98% just means that somebody isn't brave enough to just say it's just everybody, full stop. So currently, uh, you are running this National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences Superfund Research Program, which is its acronym and its name now is STEEP. I want you to talk a little bit about the initial drivers that put you in a position of saying, let me go find partners to put this Superfund site together. The program is in place to help basically the U.S. government perform research that will help the Superfund research program to make advances in how they remediate sites, how they identify problems, how they can understand what health effects result from exposure. So there's a reason why there's a government program for this the steep came into being because I had the luxury of having been tenured at URI, so I had some spare time. And I was trying to figure out how I should best use some of my freedom that I had as part of my tenured job. And I realized that there was a lot of interesting work to be done about, of course, all the legacy compounds that have basically been addressed by regulatory bodies like the EPA. And this includes PCBs, DDT, wide range of other organochlorine pesticides. It seemed a much greater urgency of looking at this emerging class of chemicals we don't know enough about and regulators just don't want to, haven't yet touched. Some of the colleagues in the field said there's so much to be done, others should join. And so I thought, hmm, maybe that's a point. And so that's the point where I when I started to seek out collaborators and see what it took to assemble a team that could, you know, function as a center. And what did you need as components of that team? Well, the unique thing about these Superfund Research Program centers is that they combine cutting-edge research with a number of cores, and the cores are there to foster integration and have their own specific functions. So there's a training core for the graduate students and postdocs, there's a community engagement course, so that actually means you have to have research that is relevant to affected people. You have the research translation core. Their role is to promote the research and help make the results um, accessible to different audiences from regulators to the lay public. You have an administrative core, making sure everything runs together. And then, you, of course, you have the research itself. 
and the research has to combine biomedical research and environmental chemistry and engineering. And so the the first parts of building together the team, I knew, of course, through my contacts, I had the environmental engineering side, and then the biomedical, we started looking for, for the appropriate names. And of course, through the Coastal Institute, I had some idea who could do the research translation. I was a little less clear on the community engagement. So it was a slow process that took us, what, three years? to put together a team that actually started to function like teams, start to speak a coherent language, understand the strengths and limitations of each, each other. So it was, it was a long process, but it was very um, rewarding. What is the reason for a community engagement core? You do have community study sites. When we were ready to apply for the Superfund Research Center grant, there was a strong emphasis placed on working with the community to make sure that you don't just do research in the ivory tower that has really no no direct outcome. So they wanted to make sure that you understand the concerns of communities that have been exposed to your particular topic of concern. So to basically be ground truthed or grounded in some something that's actually useful. In our case, we partner with the Silent Spring Institute based on Cape Cod because they had some of the first um, known measurements and occurrence of PFASs in their watershed and some of the towns acted somewhat quickly so that we know there was a historical exposure. There's also the community on the Faroe Islands which have been yielding very important and groundbreaking results on the effect of PFASs on the immune system. That link has been more difficult for most of us to engage in just because they're very remote. So Reiner, you are actually going to be spending time there this summer uh, as a Fulbright Scholar. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you're hoping to accomplish and why the Faroes in particular were a wonderful place for us to partner with. Um, the Faroes were an ideal partnering for us because they have a long history of working with birth cohorts, so epidemiological studies where they can track how children develop, and if there's changes within their health, how that can be traced back to pollutant exposure they have, either through um, exposure in the womb or through breastfeeding or through diet throughout their growing years. And that study has basically been carried forward by the chief physician on the islands, Paul Weiher, and his Danish collaborator, Philippe Grandjean. And they're basically part of, of STEEP. Initially, a lot of their concern was that the community was traditional whaling community, so they caught whales and ate them. As we know by now, there's a lot of mercury in trof high trophic level fish and mammals. So there was concern about the mercury exposure and how that affects the health of the Faroese. And the last 15 years, I think PFAS have risen to being the chief, chief concern for the health and well-being of the Faroese of all ages, but particularly, of course, the, the children. We teamed that field-based study up with a toxicologist who works in the labs. And what we're trying to get out of the combination of those two is to A, being able to see whether chemicals on their own are in mixtures, as in when you add two or three together, whether there are different effects. And we can't test this in humans because we're all exposed to a mixture. So we already have the mixture effects, but we don't know how to disentangle them. So pairing a field-based person up with a lab-based person, we can get at those differences. And we also can get a better idea on the mechanisms of how the PFAS are taken up, where they bind to, where they end up, 
and then what happens to them afterwards. So that's on the biomedical side. On the environmental chemistry side, we have a focus on the Cape where Elsie Sunderland from Harvard is looking into the transport of PFASs through the groundwater basically. So they're looking at how the presence of the PFASs changes as you move away from where they were used and what that means for what is retained, for how long they will continue to leach and where they will end up. And then lastly, my own research group is looking at different, uh, different and novel detection tools to help either scientists on the academic regulatory side to detect these chemicals in the water, in the air, and use that to better understand where they're coming from, where there's problems, and how we can use those that information to better understand the exposure of humans. So where do we get the chemicals from? Is it drinking water or is there something else? So what about um, the why they're harmful to human beings? Again, you're not a medical person, I understand, but you certainly have a broad understanding of this. Sure, there's two distinct groups of exposure and effect that we I think are aware of this, the high-end exposure that is typically reserved for those that either work in the manufacturing or the chemical industry and the communities that are surrounding them, and then communities that have been affected by high discharges, particularly to drinking water. So that will be communities like Cape Cod, where there was a fire training area, but also a military base, and both of those heavily used aqueous film-forming foam, and that seeped into the ground. So the high-end exposure, there's good evidence, strong evidence that causes several kinds of cancer. It's linked to um, ulcerative colitis and high cholesterol. Luckily, most of us are not in that position. Our exposure is not that high, but as we discussed, we still have PFAS in our blood. And that's where studies like Philippe Grandjean's on the Faroe Islands become important because now there we can see what happens when you have a more background, lower exposure, and you still have adverse effects and that include the compromised immune system that includes this changes to your metabolism links to obesity and so on and so forth um, some of the results suggest strongly that if babies are born to mothers who have high levels of PFAS in their blood and milk then there's signs of a compromised immune system and the way that Philippe Grandjean was able to show that is very tr smartly measuring the immune response to vaccines. So at some of the routine vaccines, he would look for how the immune, immune system responded. And typically after a vaccine, within two weeks, you build a lot of antibodies and the vaccine was a success. He was able to show that the more PFAS was in the blood of mothers and or children in this case, the less strong this immune response was. So clearly showing there's a somewhat compromised immune system through too many PFAS in your blood. How did they become so widespread? We've known for how long that they are problematic. And the question is, who is the we? So I think now we know through litigation that some of the producing industries knew about problems with their products and their chemicals for a lot, lot longer than the general public knew or the regulators knew. So the first studies that show problems are from the 70s. If you say we, the regulators, um, EPA took action around the millennium, so around the new millennium. Um, 
I think now the evidence is just much stronger that there are problems. Why are there so widespread? Well, the story unfortunately isn't that different to the way DDT was produced, handled, defended for a while till it was phased out. Uh, we have, so EPA has taken action not through banning the compounds, but through a voluntary agreement. So the worst three chemicals, really PFNA, PFOA, PFOS, some of those that were known to accumulate in humans were phased out of production in the US, in Europe and in Japan. But it was a typical um, sweet deal because the products that we rely on were still being produced. They just, industry now just used different chemicals to make the same um, products. And the replacement had to be very similar in, in nature, in properties to fulfill the same duties. So if you want to make Teflon, you need certain chemicals to make sure that you have, you can make the reactions. And so you need these effect-like properties and all the replacements that we know of so far are almost as bad or have caused similar contamination that we wanted to avoid and um, restrict with PFOA. So the solution was really um, to not interfere with the production cycle just to get rid of the worst chemicals at the time. As you are certainly well aware, science itself has been attacked quite a bit, and we are in an age where we're hoping that the pendulum may swing back in another direction so that science will gain its rightfully respected place in society. You were an author on two papers, that address the concept of essentiality. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that a, a bit. Certainly. So maybe as background, in the 1980s, the ozone hole was realized as a major threat to humans and other living beings on this planet. And it was a similar story that for a while the science was disputed, that there couldn't be such thing as an ozone hole, and that there was certainly no link to man-made chemicals. Eventually, that science was so solid that you couldn't really dispute it anymore. And eventually, the United Nations, so the global community, agreed on a protocol to limit and phase out the worst chemicals that were causing that ozone hole, CFCs at the time. But the switch away from CFCs wasn't strict. You couldn't just ban them from one day to the other, even though there were several uses that were not that important, like in hairsprays. There were other uses that were important, and you couldn't just pull the plug straight away. So out of this global approach of how to safely move away from dangerous chemicals was this idea of um, essential use first defined to say, if the compound is important for the safety and well-being of the societies, then we have to keep it for a while. But if not, we can get rid of it straight away. And so this was in the 80s and 90s, and it would result in the Montreal Protocol. And basically, the ozone hole is at this point almost a relict of past industrial misuse. But it's it's um, it's healing, if that's the right word. So the extent of the ozone hole is decreasing every year, and we know we have acted in time. For PFAS, we followed a similar logic, and this was work led by Ian Cousins. And what we came up with is 
There are some uses that are really not necessary and there are replacements available anyhow, so there's really no problem of phasing out PFASs today. And simple examples are, you can have frying pans without Teflon, you can still fry your eggs. So there's really no, no, no loss. Um, so that was the non-essential use, and that was easy. And then we identified a group where it's a little more difficult because the use of the PFASs is kind of essential, but alternatives have been developed already. And that, at this point, in, actually includes also the aqueous film-forming foams, which the military had, had used so widely. At this point, non-fluorinated alternatives have been developed. They are almost as good. Even within the US, um, the DoD is going to phase out the use of fluorine-containing firefighting foams. So that's, again, one way you can say, all right, at this point, they, they seem to be central, but we have alternatives, we can switch. No major problem. And then that leaves the third category where at this point you have to accept, yes, only PFAS can fulfill that function and we have no functioning alternative. And that is often but not only linked to medical applications and fire safety gear, which right now is heavily fluorinated, and things like um, hard stands, I believe, are made of Teflon. So, yes, of course, you'll keep using those. They save lives, that's very important. But the onus should really be to say, all right, we have these applications where PFASs or fluoropolymers are needed, but how about we say in 10 years, alternatives should really be developed. So we invest in R&D, come up with new innovative tools, and hopefully in 10 years can say, yes, we don't need PFASs anymore because in this application, we have something else that works just as good. So really the focus is on encouraging innovation and greener materials. Would you go so far as to say that it would be reasonable for us in the future to work toward functioning more like pharmaceuticals do? For the first time, I think the American public is very well aware of what the process is to um, achieve a, a vaccine, for example. Uh, they recognize that there are clinical trials associated with it, that it's tested with some very brave people who step forward and say, yes, go ahead and, and test this on me, after there have been certainly significant laboratory and animal trials and so on and so forth. But would it not be better if chemical companies had to prove no harm before these chemicals are released into uh, regular use? Or is that, is that just uh, far too broad and far too challenging? I think that idea is termed the precautionary principle, and it would make a lot of sense from several perspectives. And one is that the societal cost of dealing with a chemical that was proven harmful down the road is enormous. I mean, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. It's just impossible. So now instead, in the case of PFAS, we have to deal with hundreds of thousands of contaminated sites where you have to either dig up soil or sediment, you have to clean the drinking water for decades to come, and then you've got to somehow figure out what you're going to do with whatever you've dug up or concentrated on a filter, and there's no easy solution in sight. So typically, the costs are enormous. The benefits were partially... Um, the profits belong to industry, the costs are borne by society, and the benefits are really not well balanced between the producing and uh, producers and the users. So yes, 
any approach that is more protective and careful before allowing mass production of a chemical that will have a problem would be much, 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 much preferred. You have often referenced the uh, production of chemicals like this as playing a game of whack-a-mole. Yes, it's the it's the regrettable substitution. So you, we as society, as scientists, we realize there's a problem with chemical X and maybe we use the BPA in baby bottles. So we get all alarmed and say it has bad properties. We shouldn't have it in, in bottles that from, ba- from which babies drink. So we ban BPA. Now the replacement is either BPS or BPX and it turns out they're just as bad. But of course, the bottles we buy now all say they're BPA-free. It seems to suggest that the problem is solved. In reality, we haven't solved any problem. You just have a new chemical that has the same properties, same problems, and is still being sold. So whack-a-mole just because if you only look at it chemical by chemical, you don't solve the problem. And the problem is to how do you come up with something that is safe? And maybe that just involves, maybe you don't use a plastic bottle in this particular case. Having, you know, worked with you now for a number of years, I'm extraordinarily impressed with your upbeat approach to this. And you have just applied for a renewal of the uh, Superfund Research uh, Program. And uh, that's another many years that you'd be dedicating to this work. What do you as a scientist do to keep yourself um, optimistic about the work that you do? There's something very interesting we had in these discussions with our community partners and our community engagement experts was, does it actually help the affected people to know what is in their drinking water, what is in their blood? And I think the response always was, there's a right to know and you rather want to know what you have and that you can deal with it than not know and of course we don't necessarily always bring good news but at the same time it seems like the majority of people want, want, would want to know if they are exposed to something bad because then at least they can do something about it a lot of my colleagues in the field I think share the same frustration that we discover and detect nasty chemicals left right and center and you just hope that eventually there is enough enough of groundswell to actually change something and the changing could be phasing out of certain chemicals from production and or changing the way chemicals are regulated we talked about that there's numerous ways in which i hope we can improve things because we have some some more important challenges than just chemicals ahead of us anyhow that's dr ryder Lohman, director of the steep superfund research center and professor of oceanography at the university of rhode island's graduate school of oceanography you can learn more about Steep and Dr. Lohman's work at uri.edu slash steep. That's uri.edu slash S-T-E-E-P. And you can follow them on Twitter at Steep Superfund. The Steep Superfund Research Program is a partnership of the University of Rhode Island, Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, the Department of Environmental Health, and Silent Spring Institute. Research reported in this podcast was supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health under award number P42ES027706. The content is solely the responsibility of the speakers and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health. Silent Chemicals Loud Science is a production of the Coastal Institute at the University of Rhode Island, hosted by Judith Swift and edited by me, Brandon Fuller. 
If you haven't already, make sure you don't miss our next episode by subscribing to Silent Chemicals Loud Science wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us online at uri.edu slash coastal institute, on Twitter at uri underscore coastal inst, that's I-N-S-T, or on Instagram at uri underscore coastal institute. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.